It's the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. I've been thinking this week about how this podcast began and how it adapted to events in the first months. We were in the midst of the beginning of the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, but our very first episode was about racism because the country was reeling from George Floyd's killing in Minneapolis and the protests that spilled out in cities across the country and across the globe. Here's tape from our first episode. And a warning, it's difficult to hear even today. Hello, I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for spending time with us today. As the nation was just beginning to emerge in parts from the restrictions put in place to stem the spread of COVID-19, another viral outbreak took hold of us. A deadly story we've seen before repeated itself. This time in Minneapolis, this time for George Floyd. Please, 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 I can't breathe. Call in the National Guard. Call me. You have to dominate the streets. You can't let what's happening happen. Will dominate the street. Today, let him do it. I filed an amended complaint that charges former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin with murder in the second degree. Imagine you pressing down on something eight minutes that's telling you I can't breathe, that's begging for their life, and you keep pressing. What kind of mentality is that? We have permitted people to become officers of the law that ought to be somewhere else in society. We went on that day to listen to two black women talk about systemic racism, endemic racism, racism as a public health issue. In the months that followed, it seemed like we were holding twin pandemics in our thinking as we programmed this podcast. The COVID pandemic, yes, but also the racism pandemic. We noted that medical schools and providers embraced white coats for Black Lives events across the country. And as we sheltered behind our Zoom curtains, we noticed that lots of good thinking was going on, thinking about issues of equity, diversity, inclusion, money and resources were being directed there too. More and more research came out, month after month, that pointed to the inequalities in medicine. And you could see medicine make an attempt to change. And all of that gave us hope. Then last week, the New England Journal of Medicine ran a perspective piece titled, Research to Move Policy. 
using evidence to advance health equity for substance use disorders. And the authors zeroed in on this fact. Rates of overdose deaths are rising faster in Black, Latinx, and American Indian Alaska Native populations than in white populations. And they go on. Members of some of these groups also use medications for opioid use disorder at lower rates, have worse health outcomes in the context of substance use disorders, and are more likely to be targeted by police and incarcerated for drug possession than their white counterparts. Hold that thought. Remember George Floyd? Despite real efforts to address the epidemic of drug overdose deaths in the U.S., race still matters. Ethnic identity still matters when it comes to treatment access and success. The piece in the New England Journal of Medicine talks about barriers that Black, Latinx, and Native American and Alaskan people face. And it talks about ways medicine can change to remove those barriers. It raises a number of points that should be prompting discussions among physicians and politicians and leaders in law enforcement and anyone interested in policy change for a better society for us all. Carlos Blanco, a psychiatrist by training, is the director of the Division of Epidemiology, Services, and Prevention Research at the National Institute on Drug Abuse, part of the National Institutes of Health. And I'm pleased to welcome him to the program. Dr. Blanco, good of you to join us. Welcome. No, thanks for inviting me. I mean, this is a very important um, topic. You know, and so thanks for, for being interested in, in having a discussion and a dialogue on, on about this. Well, I'll tell you the title of the piece caught my eye when I saw it come through my email, Research to Move Policy. It's provocative. It's a call to action. Is there a reason why you started that way? So I think it has to do with the fact that, uh, that I am a physician, no, I'm a psychiatrist. And so I went to medical school to learn science, but not science for the sake of it, even though I, I like knowledge for the sake of it. But I am more motivated for knowledge that can help patients that can help people. And so on my daily practice, I, I help individual patients, but I think all the authors of the perspective as public um, health uh, officials and public health um, uh, people who have interest in public health wanted, want to make a difference in the life of populations. And so the way you can do that is applying science to, to inform public, public policy, you know? So we want to, to encourage and support research that, again, is not just intellectually rewarding, but can really, can really help people. No? As I hinted in the introduction, one of the things about the perspective piece that you all have written that surprises me, maybe it's not surprise, maybe it's just utter sadness that these disparities that exist continue to exist in spite of the fact that there's been concerted effort over the last few years to address ethnic and racial disparities in healthcare delivery. Is there something sort of inherently broken with the system? Well, um, maybe I'm a little bit more optimistic uh, than you are. No, I mean, I always or often think about the, the famous 
quote by, by Martin Luther King, you know, that the arc of history is long, but it bends towards um, justice. And, uh, and I think it's true. You know? I think if you, if you think about you know, 2,000 years ago, slavery was commonplace and nobody questioned it. Now we don't have slavery. So uh, that does not mean that everything is, is good and, and dandy. But I think progress gets made, not necessarily completely linear, but I think little by little we have made a lot of progress and I hope that we will continue to, to make progress. The fact that there's so much awareness of uh, inequities and so much interest in many groups to eliminate inequities, I think is very encouraging. At the same time, I think a big barrier that we all face is that even though we may not want to, to be racist or discriminate against others. I think there's sort of an innate aspect of human nature that we, we see people who are different from us and we have a tendency to think that we are better than, than others. And we can and we should fight against that tendency, but I think it's pervasive. Uh, men for many, even now, many men consider themselves superior to women. Some religions consider themselves superior to other religions. Some countries better than other countries. So so it's just something that is very deeply ingrained in human nature. I'm not saying it's good, but um, I think that's one of the one of the things that makes the progress difficult. We are aware and we have to fight against those tendencies, but those tendencies are, are there in all of us. With the cognitive behavioral therapists among your psychiatric colleagues, would they look at that and say, these are cognitive distortions when we view the world that we see ourselves being superior to others or other people being inferior to us, depending on their ethnicity or the color of their skin? I certainly think that, uh, that these are cognitive distortions, but... Um it's more difficult to identify cognitive distortions that are embedded in, in your culture or in your subculture. We all live in specific neighborhoods and areas and groups of people, and we see those beliefs as, as natural, whereas other people may see other beliefs as natural. So to the extent that those are embedded um, in your culture, I think they're more difficult to, to see. For that reason, it's very important to have contact with a diversity of individuals and groups so that, uh, you know, by comparing and contrasting different opinions and different points of view, we can converge towards a better truth. Hmm. The piece lays out a couple of barriers to high quality care. And I'm wondering if we could go through some of those and see if you could offer some commentary on them as we go through. Um, the first one is that there are lower rates of adequate health insurance among Black, Latinx, American Indian, and Alaska Native populations than white populations. So it immediately points to, in my eye, wouldn't it be better if there was universal health care available and that the insurance part of the equation could be lifted out and done away with, at least in the U.S. Um, but this this dependence on having adequate health insurance. Um, what do you make of that as a researcher? I think it's important to, to compare the outcomes of, um, of systems that don't provide universal health care with other systems that provide universal care and then see you know, 
who, who, what populations have better better health. So that would be, I think, a very important question. Of how can we get better outcomes for not only for a segment of the population, but really for the population of the of the whole country? As we point point out in the in the perspective, to the extent that certain groups in the U.S. have lower access to to care, those populations are going to have in general worse health outcomes. And of course, if you have worse health, out- health outcomes, that's going to spill over many other dimensions of, of your life. If you're not healthy, you're not going to be able to, to be productive, not, or at least not as productive as if you were healthy. You may not be able to take care of your family in the same way. Then your kids are going to have more difficulty maybe getting um, higher education. So not having good access to care really, again, sort of spills over many dimensions and, of course, your, your own happiness. But even before, uh, I mean, you started with access to care, but, but maybe even before, as you were pointing out, uh, of the context of the series, is the social determinants of, of health, of which access to care is one of them. But to the extent that, that many um, racial and ethnic minorities live in neighborhoods and areas that are under-resourced in many aspects, that's going to, to affect um, their, their uh, vulnerability to, to many health conditions. I mean, in, again, in this perspective, we focus on substance use disorders, but it's going to affect their ability to get uh, adequate nutrition, to for to care for hypertension, um, obesity. So, so I mean, we can start from from again from many determinants of health, and, and healthcare is just one of them. Right, and I I think about some of the sort of almost humanitarian motives of substance use. I mean, if you're living um, in an under-resourced community and are facing stressors that are uh, seemingly insurmountable in the culture, that would seem to be a motivation to self-medicate in whatever way was affordable and available to you. Yeah, I mean, the way I I think about um, substance use is that, um, as as you point out there, there are social determinants of health that condition the way we are going to to react. And then there are sort of also individual determinants of vulnerabilities, no, um, that are intertwined with them. So at at the very basic level, if you will, our genetic makeup is going to influence our vulnerability to using substances or having substance use disorders. Uh, but also the family upbringing, maybe being exposed to, to let's say, um, childhood adversities like sexual or physical abuse. And then one that has, um, I think people have become more and more aware is educational uh, attainment. So individuals who achieve uh, who have less, less, uh, lo- lesser education are much more vulnerable to, to substance use and substance use disorders. And then another one that I want to point out is um, having other, other psychiatric disorders. So individuals who have, let's say, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, or who have uh, depression or anxiety are more vulnerable. But we have very good treatments, not only for substance use disorders, but, but for these other mental disorders. So getting treatment for for other mental disorders is actually one way to to prevent or or help with um, with the cure of substance use uh, disorders. Right. The, your piece makes the point of 
the importance of not inadvertently putting someone with a propensity for substance use disorder, giving that person a prescription or a medication regimen that would inadvertently send them down a path towards substance use. And the reason I bring it up is because so much of that depends on an accurate history. And at least my experience of being asked for that sort of history comes in the form of about a eight-page checklist from the receptionist at the doctor's office on the first visit before any rapport has been established with the provider. I'm given a piece of paper with literally a million questions on it and asked to check yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And there's no way for the provider to know whether I've answered accurately or if I'm evading a question that there, that I may feel is stigmatized, you know, do you have a history of drug use? I don't know why I would answer that honestly if I had no rapport with the provider. So my question to you is, in this age of an electronic health record, uh, how, how do we make that history actionable in a useful way for people who might be prescribing uh, substances that could be deleterious for an individual if we knew that person's real history? Uh, as you're sort of, I think, hinting, um, the, uh, the therapeutic alliance, the contact with, with, um, with the patient is, is paramount. And, uh, you know, technology is, is very useful, but, uh, I mean, the most important thing is, is really working with, with patients, you know, because I think uh, many years ago, when I went to medical school, there was a very paternalistic view of the patients. And so doctors would tell patients, this is what you have to do, and you, could, you shouldn't do this. I mean, we were almost like the principal in the school uh, I think we've moved much more to a patient-centered approach in which is a dialogue. The, the person, the patient has the problem and I, as a technician, in a way, can provide, can suggest different solutions, but it's really a collaboration. To the extent that, that, um, that the patient sees the physician or the clinician as somebody who is helping them as opposed to... Um, trying to reprimand them or trying to find them at fault, it's much more likely that the, the patient will um, will disclose uh, any substance use. I mean, if you think about any other field, if somebody came to my apartment to, to fix something, I would tell them what the problem is as opposed to, saying, well, yeah, I'm not going to tell you that this uh, socket is not working. I'm not going to tell you that the electric, because it's in my own benefit to tell them, well, these are the problems. And then, you know, the electrician can help me fix so I see myself in, in that, or if you know, if you went to the hardware store and you don't tell the person the hardware store the problem, then he's not going to give you the correct tool, no? Right. So I see the relationship with physicians in, in that way. They come with, with a problem and I try to help them solve the problem, say, you know, these are the tools that we have, these are the potential ways in which, and then we establish a dialogue giving the needs of the patients and, and their preferences to, to fix them. Another thing that, it's very important, uh, in, especially in, in when we talk about substance use disorders, is uh, the criminalization of substance use behaviors. So you presented it in the way of, of a sort of an anonymous questionnaire. 
But many, many patients are afraid that if they write, they write something that has to do with illegal substance use, then there may be repercussions to them and their families. So to the extent that we, we can move to a medical view of substance use disorders, as opposed to, to a criminal view, that is going to, that is going to help the, the health of the people. I mean, if, if, you, if you think about, uh, you know, somebody who had diabetes, and then if they wrote in the history, well, have you eaten candy? And if you wrote, yes, I ate candy, then you could go to jail. I mean, that would not be, we would not be able to treat uh, diabetes. Or if somebody with hypertension, well, I ate some, uh, some uh, French fries. Well, now you're going to go to jail. We're going to bring you to the judge. Right. And then, so, but that's a little bit, I mean, I'm exaggerating maybe a little bit, but that's the way we think about substance use, no? It's a health behavior that is unhealthy and we have to help correct. But as I said, in a collaborative relationship as opposed to in a punishing relationship. How important do you think it is that the healthcare provider share cultural touchstones with the patient, looks like the patient, talks like the patient, shares cultural values with the patient in an evident way? To the extent that you know the, the culture of the person, uh, I mean, that's very helpful. At the same time, I mean, I treat um, individuals from many backgrounds and, and many cultures, I mean, just to shift a little bit. So obviously, I am a man, but I treat a lot of women. And so I'm not, I cannot become a, a woman to be able to treat women. So I think that the most important thing is to be open and to, and to listen to the, to the needs and the fears and the expectations of, of each patient. And if you want to extend it, you know, to go back to the perspective, the same is true for, for population. So it is not possible to become an expert in every setting, in every population. But that's why we need the dialogue between the populations, the researchers, and the people who run health systems so that we can provide the best, uh, the best possible uh, services and healthcare to, to our patients and populations. The very first sentence of your piece says racial and ethnic disparities in treatment access and outcomes among patients with substance use disorders have widened despite substantial efforts to address the epidemic of drug overdose, drug overdose deaths in the United States. And goes on to say rates of overdose death are rising faster in Black, Latinx, American Indian, Alaskan Native populations than in white populations. When you all, I think there were seven authors. Uh, yes. When you all got together, uh, I'm curious to know what prompted you to want to see this piece published? What, what fact emerged that you all said, you know, the New England Journal would be interested in something like this. We need to get this information out. We want to. We wanted to influence a, a range of audiences. So we wanted to, of course, influence other um, other physicians and other members of the healthcare system. That's why we published it in a, in a medical journal. 
but we were also hoping to get the interest of people like you who can amplify the message and translate it to broader audiences because um, we think this is uh, this is something that affects not only um, people who run health systems but really the whole populations and so we we need the whole population to have a discussion about these topics and as I said I mean this perspective is, is our opinion we don't pretend to hold the truth we what we want to is to stimulate dialogue so that there is change that benefits different communities. And probably that change has to be different for different communities because the needs and preferences of each community is different. So maybe uh, a Hispanic community in the Bronx has different needs than let's say a Native American um, population in, in California. So we wanted to influence the, the physicians and healthcare leaders. We wanted to influence the public in general, and we were also hoping to to alert uh, policymakers at the state and federal level so that action is taken. So we think that it's important to influence different levels, and again, promote the dialogue so that uh, you know through this dialogue and, and further discussion we can uh, get policies that are helpful to to all the populations. You all lay out several. Steps forward. I'm curious which which of those um, feels most promising to you. Um, and I, I take your point that different communities are going to respond to different approaches. But do, what gives you hope in this? Where 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 do you see hope in us moving forward? I see hope in um, in the fact that over the last I would say two or three years, there's been. Um, there's always been people who have been aware of inequities, but I would say over the last two or three years, there's been a much more uh, intense interest about this. And I have to credit people like like you and other people in, in um, journalism who have sort of, uh, again, amplified and maintained this flame alive, you know, because after the George Floyd um, uh, death, it could have been, you know, something that was sort of short-lived, but I think many people like you have really maintained this alive. So that gives me hope that, that people are interested. I think the administration is is very supportive. And I think there's also a sort of a cadre of, of researchers that are interested in developing the science that can inform this, this policy. So, you know, again, I'm not naive. I don't think that this is going to be all linear, and, and now we're going to, in four or five years, achieve equity. But I think we're in, on the right track. We may have some setbacks, but hopefully overall. Do you think the pandemic played any role in the zeitgeist of uh, focusing attention on issues of equity and inclusion in medical structures and um, I'm thinking of medical schools in particular, that there seemed to be a focus of attention over the last two or three years that I'm not sure we would have seen otherwise. I definitely think the pandemic has um, has brought to the forefront the importance of um, two things. One is public health and the other is applied science. So um, I think it was very clear that um, being able to apply all the basic science knowledge to develop vaccines 
was very important. You know? So instead of, of uh, focusing on writing interesting papers, I think that the whole scientific community focused on developing um, interventions that could cure people. But also, uh, the first measures were really public health measures, you know, uh, this yeah. physical distance, wearing masks. And so uh, I think we all saw that, our, that the health of each of us depended on the health of other mm-hmm. people. And so we needed much more solidarity because one person alone could not save himself or herself. We really needed all of us working together to, to save the whole country and the whole world. So I think that has brought up um, that that sort of really I think made it very clear to people that we that we need the public health approach to many of these things. I mean, it was sort of crystallized in COVID, but once you understand that, I think it's easier to see that that applies to many other disorders, not just not just infections. Such a great point. I'm curious about who wrote this piece with you. Tell me something about the the group of people that got together to author this piece. This is, uh, I mean, this was really a, a, a group effort, so I certainly don't want to to take the credit for it because it was really um, it was really a team effort. And, and beyond that, I mean, even though we sort of verbalize our thoughts there, obviously our thoughts are, are informed, uh, you know, I mean, we, many of us have more than 30 years of experience working on the field, in this field. No? So we constantly talk to, to patients, we talk to other um, researchers, we talk to other uh, clinicians, we talk to people with live experience. And so we try to synthesize what, what, we, th- what we think that the field is. And of course, this is our opinion, so I don't want to not, not take responsibility for what we're saying. But what I'm saying is it's not like we were geniuses that sat there and then suddenly the Holy Spirit descended upon us and we were illuminated. It was, it's more, you know, like many things in science, somebody has to sort of crystallize and verbalize what the community is more or less thinking with nuances. You know, but I think we reflect what many. And so, um, as you as you know, we are from, um, from the National Institutes of Health, but then there's also from the Agency of Healthcare Quality and Research so NIH, the National Institute of Health, often generates new new science, new evidence. What this other agency does is, is more synthesize evidence. And so we wanted to, to work together because it's important to generate new science, but also it's important to organize the science and put it in a way that can be more easily understood by the general public, but also by many policymakers. I mean, if you think about Congress, you cannot expect um, all congressmen or all senators to be to be scientists. So you have to put it in a way that is for smart people, but who are not necessarily experts on on that particular field. No. So again, we wanted to we had this dialogue and we went back and forth. It took us about one year to to write this piece, hmm. but we're very satisfied because a lot of people are getting interested and you know we hope it's going to stimulate more thinking and, and more importantly more action to eliminate uh, inequities yeah. you've um, already correctly uh, identified me as being a pessimist in some ways so uh, <laughs> i want to ask about um what in some quarters of the society the american society seem to be an absolutely horrendous 
uh, disregard for the way science is done and the way scientific knowledge is advanced. And I'm wondering, given that twofold nature of, of the NIH team and the, the team that was, uh, comes from, a, from an organization about synthesizing scientific information for, for public consumption, were you alarmed at how COVID data was being misused and misunderstood and this disregard for the way science works? So um, maybe I'm the sort of the, again, I don't want to be Pollyannish, but I am certainly an optimist. So even, uh, even people who say that they do not believe in science actually use science or the results of science. I think that many of the people who um, did not follow the science on COVID still probably use uh, electricity, use cars, fly planes. I mean, many, a lot of these things live in built houses that are, you know, that are based on, um, you know, calculus from, uh, from uh, mathematics. So even people who say do not believe in science, in fact, benefit greatly from, from science. So my hope is that eventually they will also um, um, believe in the science of infectious uh, disease. But the other thing that, uh, that you sort of raised is that we as scientists have to become better at explaining our, our science. So I think um, often we think that if we, if we build it, they will come. That if we create the science, everybody is going to immediately believe the results. But in fact, uh, in addition to having the science, you have to be able to, to explain and have discussions. And, and so I think as scientists, we have to, be, to become better at explaining the results and engaging with different audiences. And also in a way to, to, to be more humble because you know, we can present a point of view, but, but other people have other points of view and we have to be able to engage in that Right. Right. I want to ask really just one other question and then I'm going to let you go. Um, and it has to do with stigma. Uh, and I'm curious whether uh, substance use disorder somehow lends itself to being stigmatized. Is it there's something about it that allows us to look at it differently? So, I mean, it's such a big, uh, such an important issue, and I'm glad that, uh, that you're bringing it up because certainly stigma is a a, a big, um, a big de social determinant of health and also a big barrier to, to treatment. And certainly, the stigma of substance use disorders is is it's decreasing, but it's still very large. But again, I'm going to be the optimist. Um, you know, when I was a kid. I don't know if, if that was also true when you were a kid, but when I was a kid, um, having cancer was stigmatized. People would, would hide it. And I mean, of course, it's not, um, I mean, it's not something to be proud about. It's, it's, it's unfortunate when you have cancer, but nobody nobody sees it as, as something that is stigmatized. It's just a disorder. Like, I mean, you wear glasses, I wear glasses. I would prefer not to have to wear glasses, but I'm not ashamed of wearing glasses. It's just a condition that we have. When I was a, when I trained in psychiatry, having depression was very stigmatized. People would not talk about having depression or family members having depression. Again, I don't think people are, are proud of having depression, but it is now recognized as a, you know, a disorder like any other disorder. There are good treatments for depression. 
And so there's been progress in the area of mental health. And so substance use disorders for me are the next frontier. And again, it's better not to have a substance use disorder, but I think <clears throat> the, the, the shame is not to have the disorder, but, but rather not to access treatment. We have very effective treatments for substance use disorders. The same way I go back to the glasses, the same way that you and I wear glasses and, and have a much better life because we have access treatment for our uh, eyesight problems. People who have substance use disorders, if they access treatment, uh, they will have a much better life. So my hope is that through the work that, that all of us, um, you know, scientists and journalists are doing, stigma will little by little disappear. It's not, it's not going to happen today. It's not going to happen tomorrow. But uh, but maybe like Casablanca says, but maybe soon and and forever, no. <laughs> so I think we will conquer stigma. It's not again. It's not going to be immediate. It's not that the, the fight is over. But I'm very optimistic that we're making progress and looking at the progress we've made in other in other diseases. I I think you know I think there's reason to be cautiously optimistic. You are an optimist. It's good to see. Dr. Blanco, I'm really grateful for your time. Congratulations on this piece for you and your, your co-authors. It's provocative and it's a, it's a good piece to think about moving forward with. Thank you very much for, for your interest and your questions. It really, it really made me think even, even further about the piece and what we can do to move the field forward. So thanks for your stimulating conversation. Carlos Blanco is the director of the Division of Epidemiology, Services, and Prevention Research at the National Institute on Drug Abuse, part of the National Institutes of Health. You'll find a link to the New England Journal of Medicine perspective piece, Research to Move Policy, on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Connect with us on Twitter, where we're human underscore caring. The program is produced by Melody Fawcett and Scott Acord. We have research help from medical librarians, including Basha Dolovska elliott Seema Bakta, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Sean Collins. Be well.